navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to the February 2019 episode of the Datascape Cloud Update podcast. Boy, that's a mouthful. This is the podcast where we are going to discuss the latest announcements from the leading public cloud vendors with industry experts. And I'm going to introduce those experts right now. Today, I'm joined with Pierig Lasseau, who will be discussing AWS's updates. Hey, Pierig. Hey, hi, Chris. Happy to be here. Also joining us is Warner Chavez, who will be discussing the Azure updates. Welcome to the show, Warner. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be back here in the Cloudscape, kicking off 2019. Yes, indeed. And last but not least, Kartik Sikar will be discussing the GCP updates. Hey, Kartik, how are you doing? Yeah, hi, everybody. I'm doing great. Happy to be here and looking forward to a great 2019. Absolutely. And just a little bit of a spoiler, folks. Our next episode will be a 2018 retrospective as well as a 2019 what to look forward to. We're going to try to make some predictions and see how wrong we are over the next year or so. But anyway, today it's all about the updates that came out since about reInvent, since our last episode. We took a small break over the festive season, so it's the December and January updates. Let's start today with Azure. So it looks like, Warner, Azure is taking aim at uh, Teradata with some EDL migration stuff. You want to fill us in? Yeah, so basically Microsoft released this month their official Teradata to Azure SQL Data Warehouse migration guide. So the big deal here, of course, is that it's an official migration guide from Microsoft first party produced by Microsoft's internal cloud solution architects guiding people from on-premises Teradata to Azure SQL Data Warehouse. I went over the migration guide. It's pretty pretty good document. And the steps, really, the methodology itself, I would say is pretty much what most professional data engineers have already been doing for years in terms of what steps to use and whatnot. But it is interesting that, for example, they decided to target Teradata as part of the guide. Because once you look at the guide, you can tell, like, pretty much you can take this methodology and expand it into migrating from Oracle, let's say, or migrating from something like an Ateza, for example, into Azure SQL DW, but they were very specific on targeting Teradata, which I think it's got to be something in there, right? Some business reason why they're targeting Teradata. Probably the, the sharks that smell some blood sounds like might be an easy target for a cloud migration takeover kind of thing, right? I do have, have spoken with several opportunities in the last few months of people that indeed they're rethinking their investments on engineered systems on-prem. And once they do the math on renewing this like really expensive hardware with really expensive licenses, the cloud data warehouses look really nice. Yeah, so, yeah, I can see the, the very attractive cost there. Yeah, good one. Yeah, so the, the guide is also something interesting about the guide, of course, is that it prioritizes all the past elements. So the guide does not use any IaaS elements. It's basically a you know move from Teradata on-premises to a pure pass solution in Azure, all the way from using just you know raw Roblox storage all the way to Power BI reports. Hmm. Right? So it's quite quite a difference as well, right? No IaaS used at all. From somebody that might be used to just doing everything on-prem, it's a good intro. It would be a good intro into how they could move into the cloud as well. So very valuable stuff. And obviously, at Pythian, we already have some of this stuff even 
kind of automated with their own analytics as a service solution, right? So it's it's also industry validation that our own approach is is valid as well. Yeah, absolutely. Kartik, let's talk about the new big query features. Yeah, some of the key features that have been announced in BigQuery are mostly focused towards their UI. Now, not everybody is an expert in SQL and writing different SQL queries. So one of the key things that they have launched recently is essentially collaboration features in which you can actually have a query that you can write on BigQuery and then be able to share those queries across with multiple other analysts or personnel who are actually performing queries on BigQuery. So essentially, it it kind of becomes a little bit like a query repository, not formally so, but essentially you can share all the queries along to your other colleagues, uh, collaborate on how you want to analyze the data, and so on. So that is actually a very neat and handy feature. Does Um, it it do visualization in the same UI? Kind of like I'm thinking, the way I'm picturing right now as you're describing it, Kartik, is it kind of like a notebook experience for BigQuery? Like Not shareable yet. notebooks? Not yet. It's only a right. shareable query. So you can actually write okay. a, a, a SQL query in BigQuery UI. And then you can actually, there is, a, there is a tab called query sharing. You can actually share that query and it shares that query as a link to the other users whom you want to share it with. Um, so it's essentially the, way, the same way in which you share a Google Doc or a Google Sheet, you share a Google BigQuery query uh, okay. with gotcha. your colleagues as well. So I, I hope that at some point of time, they will start incorporating a little bit more notebook features as well, but not yet. Seems like the natural progression really for all these things, right? To just eventually yeah. do like full-blown notebook collaboration. Yeah. Yes, exactly. There are multiple different products in this space as well, which some have some capabilities, like data prep has some capabilities along these lines. Notebooks has some capabilities along these lines. So essentially, I, I, I'm hoping that in the near future, they might start consolidating some of this in order to have a consistent UI experience at some point of time. So that is that is one thing. The other update that they had was essentially regarding metadata tagging of some of your data sets and tables. So essentially, if you have some notes around what this table is and you want to create some level of metadata for and tag it to a particular table or a data set, you can actually do that right now, right through the BigQuery UI. So that is really helpful with the whole data catalog, master data management uh, initiatives that are happening not only in Google Cloud, but in all the major public cloud providers. This is, again, one yet another hint as to where Google might be going. I think this might be fitting in well with their broader term master data management and data governance initiatives. And they have some other updates regarding making it easier to sort and filter queries directly from the UI and stuff like that. So. These are some of the updates that happened in terms of BigQuery. Nothing really key, but mostly from the UI standpoint. Okay, Pirig, I know we're a little light on the updates from AWS this month, given that reInvent just happened in November, but I know you've got a couple you really wanted to cover. Let's talk about the new file sharing solution they created. Right. So that was one of the big AWS reInvent announcements this year, and I actually had the time to uh, put my hands on it. So it's actually a very interesting service. So this has been a long time request from AWS uh, slash Microsoft customers. They've been looking for a Windows native file share system. So, you know, they've been told forever since the cloud has made it 
as its appearance to use uh, blob storage for any file sharing needs. And that has just been a burden to several customers. They didn't want to re-architect their, their solutions. There's many use cases for this. CRMs, ERP, .NET applications usually rely on file shares. Some media processing, so you want to um, encode a video in parallel, you cut it in chunks, you need to write that to a same kind of file storage solution home directories for users and so on. So customers wanted to lift and shift here and they didn't want to re-architect their solution. So AWS finally came out with FSx. After trying to expand on the Elastic file system to add SMB, they weren't very successful there. So they finally came out with the solution. Uh, has this product already been like launched in for general availability? Because I see even Google is coming out with Google File Store and Microsoft bought a year as the NFS system. So just wondering if it is already general availability and what their adoption rate is at, at this time. Yes, it is. So it's already available in console to every normal user. It's not part of a better program or anything. So it's GA. So the interesting thing is that this is actually built on top of a Windows server, actually. That's the real tech. They didn't go with an open source solution here with Samba and so on and all that to try to build a, a solution. They actually leverage real Microsoft tools. So it's real into FS. It hooks up to real Active Directory. It uses DFS, so Microsoft as a Microsoft product as well for its replication, et cetera. So it's a true Microsoft-branded product. To go a bit in more detail, so it supports Samba, of course, from version 2 to a recent 3.1.1. So pretty much any flavor of Windows servers can hook up to it, even the most recent versions, 2.16 and I think 2.19 now. Linux can connect to as well. On the hardware side, so this, this whole infrastructure is backed by SSD hard drives, NVMe hard drives, so they're very quick, and it scales to a very large volume shares. So I believe it's 64 terabyte maximum and up to two gigs per second of uh, bandwidth. So yeah, a very performant solution. So they, as I said, they leverage uh, DFS internally. That's how they do, um, they achieve HA within a region or within an availability zone. Right now it's not cross-region yet, but there's a plan for it to become cross-region. You can create two FSx solutions and sync them up via shared namespace. So you actually leverage namespaces to expose shares, multiple shares, HA shares, and the foreground of your client connects to either one of them. So it's all made to be HA. It integrates with your IAM rules. It works within VPC, so you can have security groups allow who can mount what, and so on. So yeah, it's a very complete solution. The requirement there is that you need to select the Active Directory you want to connect to. So it relies on uh, Windows ACLs. So you need to have those user and groups stored somewhere so that you need your AD to do that. There is also KMS is supported. So that's encryption at rest for those volumes is done. If you use a more recent version of SMB, uh, you have encryption in transit as well. And they went through the trouble of, of validating any compliances. So it's going to be HIP eligible, PCI DSS compliant, et cetera. So it's a really, a really good solution for people who are, are have security requirements. Good. Thanks, Pierre. Warner, I'm going to come back to you. There were a couple of really interesting Postgres announcements for Azure. Do you want to take us through them? Yeah, we got a couple this week. Microsoft is pushing hard into the PostgreSQL space. I mean, I think we all know here that due to the fragmentation of the MySQL ecosystem, actually PostgreSQL has benefited quite a bit in the open source database space, right? 
some people don't want to deal with Oracle being the the head of the official MySQL distribution, right? And then we have now MariaDB as well. So it has uh, fragmented a bit. And I think PostgreSQL is the one that's gained a lot of mindshare after this, this happened, right? So Microsoft is capitalizing on that in uh, a couple of ways. So first is just improvements in general to the PostgreSQL PaaS service. So this is the database as a service offering native first party that Microsoft provides for PostgreSQL. And now you have the ability to do read replicas with PostgreSQL, right? This approach, the approach of one master server with multiple read replicas is pretty much now like the de facto approach that most large scale OLTP databases are taking. We've seen this now with Microsoft with Azure SQL DB and availability groups, AWS does it with Aurora and PostgreSQL now is gonna have up to five replicas natively from Microsoft service. So they're putting quite a bit of added capability there. So you could build a pretty, you know, high concurrency, high performance requirements database on Azure now for PostgreSQL. The other announcement is actually very interesting is that Microsoft purchased a company called Citus Data that actually develops an open source extension for PostgreSQL to turn it into a distributed database, turn it into an MPP database. So it takes basically PostgreSQL and it gives it an extension to be able to provide distribution columns to split your database into multiple nodes and have also a distributed query optimizer. So this is obviously a strategic move. We will very likely see this PostgreSQL MPP capability come into Azure, you know, in a few months, right? This company already has it commercialized to be available to be deployed in the cloud. So I would expect that probably merging the offerings wouldn't take too, too long. And I mean, if they purchased it, obviously it's because they want to put it in the cloud, right? So my guess is that soon we're going to see the PostgreSQL database as a service offering augmented with also the capability to make it an MPP PostgreSQL using this extension, right? So very interesting, obviously, that they're doing acquisitions in this space. And again, that they specifically targeted PostgreSQL. Maybe they think there's a niche there that is not properly served right now by the other cloud providers and that going after it with lots of dollars might help to move some PostgreSQL projects into Azure, right? That's my guess. Yeah, yeah. And folks, if we did cover Postgres on the Datascape in quite a bit of detail, we had Alvaro from 8K Data join us in an earlier episode. Still very relevant if you're curious about Postgres. I highly suggest you check it out. Kartik, we're going to come back to you. It looks like there were some security updates on the GCP platform. So weird to say GCP and then platform, right? But access approval and enhanced access transparency services, why don't you tell us what those are? Yes, definitely. So a few podcasts ago, we had mentioned about access transparency that GCP had introduced within the platform in which whenever Google Cloud engineers, that is basically Google engineers, ever touch your data for any reason, for any downtime, any troubleshooting or any reason, then you have a complete audit log in terms of what data was looked at, complete records around exactly what Google had seen in terms of what Google had visibility on in terms of what data and records they touched, what logs they touched, what activities they performed. So they had complete activity logs around that in order to provide that transparency to the customers. 
Now, the next level to that transparency, access transparency feature on GCP has been access approval. So now what you can also do as a customer on GCP is provide approvals for only specific data items that you want Google engineers or Google support staff to have access to. And then that falls back under the access transparency services as well. So not only do you have visibility into what Google has been doing or what Google engineers have touched the data and where they have touched the data and what data they have touched, but you can also approve different levels of access and different data items for Google to be actually able to see that. So they are challenging that they are the first in the public cloud world in order to provide that access transparency. And it basically, access transparency and access approval is now available in alpha for Google Compute Engine, App Engine, Persistent Disk, Google Cloud Storage, Key Management Service, BigQuery, PubSub, and so on. I mean, after some point of time, it will be applicable to all the products that are available within the GCP ecosystem. And this is yet another push for Google to start creating a little bit more assurances towards customers that it takes data security and transparency very, very seriously. Yes, I remember us talking about this feature. I I think it's outstanding. I think that uh, it should be mandatory for all of the clouds and heck, even all of the uh, service providers to provide this level of transparency to the customer. And I I point at Evernote, who changed their EULA a couple of years back where they said, you know, our people can now see your data and we're going to let them, you know, do that. I have no idea what notes of mine they're looking at. And it's, you know, it's a little concerning. Same with OneNote. So I think all of the cloud providers absolutely have to have this to, to give a level of trust to coming back. This is, by, by the way, ahead. this is all customer lockbox in Azure. It might be depending on how much they've expanded the capabilities of it, because in Azure right now, it is limited to VMs. So okay. if we go by the lawyering of the actual release, then you know, if they expanded it outside of just VMs, then I guess they can say it's the first, of course. But, yeah, but in, Azure, in Azure right now, it's for VMs, basically, yeah. GCP has expanded it to all the other services, not just uh, VMs, but all the product services that they are yeah. actually launching. So, in terms so of yeah, so, so it's definitely more limited in Azure right now. But, I mean, this is the beauty of the cloud. GCP now made this statement. So somebody at Microsoft Monday is going to go and be like, we got to get there now. Yeah. (laughs) This is a bit of a low blow, but hopefully it tells you if they delete your database. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Anyway. They did tell them, but they told them after the fact. I think we need to do another episode about that. Absolutely. I'm going to write about it later today. On the topic of having your data deleted, let's talk about backing it up on AWS. Pirig, coming back to you. All right. So this is another pretty cool service that AWS came up with. So it's a backup service. So I'm going to, it's divided into two categories. So there's going to be service level backups, which are more comparable to what your traditional backups are. So they're going to be like file system backups or maybe just data backup. And then you have service level snapshots. So those are for all the services in AWS for which you have the possibility to take snapshots. So in the first, we have Elastic FileShare and DynamoDB. Those are two services for which there are no snapshot possibilities. And so those are backed up by the new AWS backup service. While RDS, EBS, and Storage Gateway leverage the existing snapshot features in AWS to to make those backups. So this allows you to backup file system, block volume, SQL databases, NoSQL databases, and other resources. And you have access to as much storage, backup storage as you need to do that at a fairly low call 
cost. So this is services geared toward people who had compliance reasons to maintain backups and, and so on in the cloud. And so they don't need to bring their on-prem solution to the cloud, they can just leverage this. All in all, what it is, it's a nice GUI to manage your snapshots and your backups. Whereas people probably had been doing this programmatically through the API to take snapshots on a regular basis. Now all of this can be done quite conveniently in a nice GUI and you can create collections for your backups and the process of restoring them, which was actually quite a bit painful with snapshots is now a lot easier. Now it's a one-click Press, whereas before you had to mount your snapshot onto a new volume and then create a new resource with that volume and so on. So it was a bit more convoluted. So what this does in reality is that you have a backup of your entire infrastructure at a point in time to which you can revert with just the click of a button. So fairly convenient. Okay. And how does it relate to Azure Site Recovery? Is it basically Amazon's answer to that? Yeah, pretty much. It is. It is definitely a step in that direction. So now, obviously, not all services are, are yet supported in AWS, but we we know and they've, they've asserted that this is what's going to come to other services as well. Okay, sounds good. Warner, coming back to you, it looks like there were some serious updates to the Azure database migration service. Do you want to walk, walk us through them? Yeah, so this one is Microsoft continues to try to catch up and gain ground on the database migration space because anybody that's that's familiar with this space, knows that AWS debuted their database migration service probably at this point years, and they've at this point covered so many combinations, right? So Microsoft is still a little bit playing catch up here, but they are doing some good work to the point that now, this month, they have enabled online migrations of SQL Server to Azure SQL DB, online migrations of MySQL, and also online migrations of PostgreSQL. So for example, you have the capability now with the service to do an online migration for PostgreSQL if it's hosted on-premises, on a VM anywhere, or even on AWS PostgreSQL RDS. So that's a good capabilities. The similar capabilities been built now. Same thing that I just mentioned, but for MySQL was also released this month. And I think they're just going to obviously continue to increase the combination of services and migrations that you're going to be allowed to do. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The easier it is to adopt it, the more likely it's a, it's a solid old school strategy. It's got to be. Yeah. It's got to be as much of, as much as it is possible to make it a push button type of experience. Right. Yeah. You just got to make it really easy for people not to feel a lot of friction easy for people to also like just see the gain or the value right away from the migration, right? Mm -hmm. So I think they're going to move a lot more into this space. For example, they haven't done as much as I would have liked to see in the SQL data warehouse space. Mm -hmm. Now that we talked about this migration guide, for example, even the migration guide itself requires quite a bit of human intervention still. Right for DW it does. So I would like to see some more investments in the DW space. Hopefully we'll, we'll see that yeah. coming on later in the service. Indeed, Kartik Google Cloud Identity. It sounds really neat. Why don't you walk us through what it is and how we can use it? Oh uh, sure. So this was one initiative that was launched by Google and announced by Google rather in next uh, 2018 in London, and we were waiting for this feature to actually come to beta before we started talking about it. Google has always provided identity services in order to use Google authentication and Google logins 
for multiple different customers and multiple different enterprises in order to use Google identity in order to log into their systems. One of the key issues there, however, was what if you have an organization which has a large number of contractors, external service providers, partners, and so on, and they all belong to different organization structures and, and they may not be following Google identity provider. So how do you incorporate a large set of different email or URL domains or Active Directory domains which are not Google identity and consolidate them within an enterprise. That was always a little bit of challenge, especially when you have a lot of a singular identity provider and a large number of different vendors and partners whom you work with on a daily basis who also want access to your systems. So that was a little bit of a challenge. So what Google actually has in, in terms of cloud identity for customers and partners is basically provided a middle layer which allows security digestion from the third-party providers, from whoever the customer or partner is, whatever domain the customer or partner is part of, they digest the security from their service provider and then incorporates it back into an organizational Google Cloud identity. So it provides Google-grade security beyond the Google's infrastructure, Google's identity provider for the third parties that are actually logging into your organization. So it doesn't actually control the third parties user authentication mechanism, but it actually provides you the security and safety because all that authentication and authorization now happens through Google's identity provider. So you can actually, and it's, and again, we know that Google's identity provider is also enabled through like multi-factor authentication, it's planet scaled, it has threat identification and posturing around that. So essentially now that adds a next layer of not only security features, but also capabilities in order to be able to use third-party user accounts into your applications which are powered by Google Identity. So it makes it much more complete. And essentially, this was something that a lot of people were looking at because really a lot of organizations don't live in isolation. They always have to have a lot of different customers, partners who want to use their applications. And logging in to their applications has always been a challenge because they have a different authentication authorization. So this way it kind of manages and brings an entire organization and all its external dependencies and external users under one umbrella. That's great. I, I can see how this is just a problem that, you know, it's just going to get worse and worse as we, you know, collaborate, the, you know, B2B and the gig economy and, you know, Upwork and all that fun stuff. Yeah. I think that's, that's great that they have that mechanism. Let's stay on the theme of security. And so Warner, could you talk about Azure Security Center? Yes, yeah, so Azure Security Center, for the people that are not super familiar with it, is basically Microsoft's security manager dashboard solution in Azure. So most new security-related functionality, even if it's deployed to a particular service, also really receives a security center integration. So to give you an idea, for example, if you have databases and they have the option to do encryption at rest, through Security Center, you could see which databases have it activated, as well as seeing it on the database-specific page kind of thing, right? So that's the idea of Security Center, obviously, as the name implies. So what they've added to Security Center, I think is pretty interesting, is that if you give it the permissions, Security Center can now evaluate the subscription against specific standards, industry standards, and give you a compliance report 
or or flag the things that are non-compliant in terms of Azure configuration for a specific standard. So right now they are starting this capability with the Azure CIS benchmark, so the Center for Internet Security, which has benchmarks for many, many different products, but including Azure, so they do have one for Azure, and they've implemented it on Security Center. They have PCI 3.2, ISO 27001, and also the SOC TSP, Trusted Service Provider Standard as well. So depending on what you care about, obviously, maybe you have no interest in credit cards. So the PCI one, you wouldn't care about it. But if you just want to have a, you know, let's call it like a standard benchmark security config that you can say, I did my due diligence and you just want to follow the CIS benchmark, then you can just do that one, right? And if you, on the other hand, if you are, holding credit card info, maybe then you want to make sure that you pass not only the CIS, which I would call the base benchmark, but you also obviously need to be able to pass the PCI, right? So at least on the Azure portion, you could provide not only the audit capability to just you know print a report and say here, it's my Azure subscription is configured to PCI, but if there's something that is non-compliant, then the service will tell you as well. Now, of course, all of these security standards depend on shared responsibility, right? So not be just because a security center says that your subscription is PCI compliant from an Azure configuration perspective doesn't mean you're going to pass a PCI audit if you decided to store you know, people's information in clear text in your database, right? That is still obviously your responsibility. But... I think it's a good starting step, right? If you don't know where to start, you have to be compliant with some of these standards. It at least gives you somewhere to start, right? At least it tells you the part that is configurable in Azure, the part that is not just completely controlled by you, you can easily get started, evaluate it, take remediation, and just go off to the races. And the other bit that I think is interesting, of course, is that Microsoft is implementing this as just one piece of the bigger compliance puzzle. So for, for people that haven't been following this, this space in the Microsoft side of the, of the world, they are developing this, this product called Compliance Manager. And the idea is that Compliance Manager is basically going to be a full-blown compliance solution that will touch on not just Azure, but let's say if you're using Dynamics, then it'll integrate with Dynamics information. If you're using O365, then it'll integrate with your O365 tenant as well. You'll be able to eventually look into your on-premises config as well. So like I said, the idea here is that down the line, they want to be able to go in and provide a, a whole comprehensive compliance solution that just takes a look at everything. And in terms of strategy, obviously this makes a lot of sense. I think I've, I've said it many, many times that Microsoft's capability to provide tight integrations with stuff that people already have is really what sets it apart from some of the other cloud providers, right? Because yeah. I mean, they develop Office, they develop Windows Server, they develop Azure, they are obviously developing Dynamics. A lot of people that had interests on SharePoint on-premises, they're all migrating to SharePoint online and so on, right? So yeah. they're in the perfect spot to be able to create something like this, like this compliance manager that looks at everything. Well, yeah, and, and not only that, taking fe creating features like this and then defaulting them to on, will go a long way for helping security, you know, because a lot of small businesses and, and non-enterprise 
level types of business are adopting all of the clouds and they don't necessarily know what they're doing. They don't necessarily have the departments and training as they whip up apps to service their customers. So I like to see things like this just enabled by default just to help protect us all. You never know who's going to be you know, using an app that it might be, maybe your dentist writes a custom app. And so having security default in the background is a good thing. Continuing on the, the security theme, we'll wrap up the AWS updates. Uh, admittedly, I'm not a network person, but I found this quite interesting, but I'm probably going to introduce it incorrectly, Pirig. So two new TLS uh, termination points for load balancers. Right. So first off, I don't want to confuse anyone here between SSL and, and TLS. So the T- SSL has been deprecated for, for a while now, since 2015, and it's version 3. So nowadays, the libraries that work around your certificates to secure connections are mostly based off TLS. Okay, certificates are, are made for TLS to be used with TLS or SSL. A certificate is not SSL or is not TLS, just to, to clarify that up first. So what this is, now that I've, I've put the jargon aside, so this is essentially SSL as a service, kind of. And this is a, clearly a response to the vulnerabilities that we've had in the past few years. So the Poodle or the Drowned, or there have been SSL vulnerabilities. So this is a response to this. So basically, this piggybacks onto your network load balancers in AWS, the new flavor of uh, load balancers, the NLB versus the classic LBs. And this allows you basically to deploy your certificate there to choose what protocol versions you want to enable for your connections, and it basically secures the traffic for you. So there are two advantages to this. And this is for people who, by the way, don't need end-to-end encryption, right? Who don't need encryption all the way back to their web servers, for example, where they're happy to, to terminate the encryption at the load balancer level. So yes, there are two advantages to this. So the first one is to basically offload the SSL negotiation, right? So this is a very CPU intensive activity on your backend servers. So sometimes, you know, the web servers were built to deal with that extra CPU activity. So this basically offloads all that, that CPU compute onto the load balancers themselves. So that frees up your web servers to handle more connections. And then the second thing that it does is that it can actually manage your certificates for you. So i.e. you want to roll out a new certificate because it's been compromised. It's very easy for you to achieve. It's going to be deployed to your load balancers. It can update your load balancers before they expire for you and so on. And it's so it's versus the classical solution where we would be deploying certificates everywhere on all our backend servers. We only have to deploy this in one place in AWS. So it's all nice and easy to do versus. And so now the, what comes with this is obviously, well, AWS uh, security team, this part has you know NDAs and is well aware of these uh, security vulnerabilities well ahead of, of us. Um, they, they have that confidential information. And so they basically can patch this even before the security is, is announced or made public. So this is all, you know, you're going to have zero day patching on your network load balancers and all your SSL and TLS layers. So very good. Yeah, that is good. And when I read about it, I've never had to deal with a lot of certificate management, but it looked like a real pain and something you could mess up really easily. Oh, yeah. Updating certificates is always very painful. And it's actually a good portion of SRE activity that we have at Pythian is updating our customers' certificates all over the place. So this will make it easier for us and for them. Okay, good. Let's come back and talk about one of my favorite features, Warner Cognitive Services. Yeah, we got interesting update this month that just basically validates that Microsoft is taking cognitive services seriously and they are 
going to continue investing on it and they want to turn it into a more robust, what they usually call ring zero, you know, like their core type of services in the cloud. And we actually did have an update about cognitive services a few episodes back where they added the capability of running cognitive services on premises for people that didn't want to move their data to the cloud. So they continue on this role of adding stuff to cognitive services and there's quite a bit they did in January. So if you're not familiar with cognitive services, we have a full-blown episode, by the way, on the Datascape podcast. So I'm not going to go into details on that, other than to say that it's Microsoft's APIs that are geared towards speech or vision or text processing and or knowledge processing and this type of AI application, right? So first, they added a bunch of certifications and compliance, security standards into how they store and process the data that has to do with cognitive services. Apparently, they added 31 certifications related to the cognitive services, going from ISO to HIPAA to SOC to PCI compliances on Microsoft's implementation of these cognitive services. So again, I think that's validation that they want cognitive services to be adopted at an enterprise level, the kind of people that actually care about all these checkboxes and compliance requirements. They also clarified in their documentation about exactly where the data is stored when you interact with cognitive services. So again, this is to make it clearer in case you are going through an audit or you need to pass some sort of compliance evaluation where everything is and where it is in the world, which is also very important nowadays, obviously, because of all the data sovereignty requirements. They've also added more regional availability. So in the last six months, they've gone from 15 regions that have cognitive services to 25 regions around the world now. So that's quite a bit as well. And the last is just a small quality of life improvement they've done where they have made it possible to have a unified API key that you can use for the multiple cognitive services instead of having to authenticate yourself against each service individually, which was a little bit more cumbersome if you were programming against them. Now you have a unified API key to go and just use them kind of like buffet style. So very, very interesting. I think, again, it's just a validation that they don't plan to just release and abandon cognitive services. They are taking it very seriously. And so let's go to you, Kartik. I, that pretty much wraps our Azure updates as well. We've got a couple on for GCP and one really fun one. Let's talk about Feast. Why do we need this? And well, actually, for the listeners, what is it? <laughs> sure. So talking, keeping on the same track as cognitive services, so this is uh, Google Cloud's way of doing things. So Gojek is, was another company uh, which collaborated with Google Cloud to start creating this thing called Feast, which is essentially a feature store for machine learning. So essentially what this really is, is essentially a feature library that when machine learning engineers, data scientists start creating new features out of the data that is available in your organization, they can actually use keep these features in a repository and use it for training other models that they might have for serving other kind of data and other kind of machine learning models as well. Now, one of the key issues that used to happen previously was a lot of these models, a lot of these features were very isolated in terms of their code environments and were not very rich in terms of how do you really collaborate very well using some of these feature extractions that you have done and share it across a wider audience, across the data science team, across the machine learning analyst teams, 
in order to be able to use a feature that has already been created within your organization and then use the same feature to apply to multiple different data sources in order to derive different modeling. So previously, you would have to either copy paste the code or create a net new feature, which might be a lot of repeatable work. Obviously, that introduces a lot of bugs, issues, and what have you with, with such processes. But now when you have a consolidated repository, wherein you have a feature set, you can have a dedicated team which just starts breaking out feature after another, and then you have another team which can actually use these features or just a wider team which can actually use this feature library in order to be able to create the data science models and the machine learning models based on these feature sets that you have created. So this is essentially a feature repository and a feature store which stores all these different features together and it solves multiple different problems of features not being reused, the varying definition of what people might or what different data scientists might assume the feature definitions might be. How do you ensure that the feature that has been created within your organization is consistent across all the data models? And how do you make sure that the features that are being used in the different models are consistent between the training side and on the serving side as well? So this really solves that, uh, solves a lot of those problems. Um, Again, I look at Feast to be a fancy feature library that you can use within your enterprise and keep all your features in this repository. So I think that is a pretty good new offering on the Google Cloud ML side. Agreed, agreed. And there was a recent announcement about Google being named in the Magic uh, Quadrant. Do you want to elaborate? Yes, absolutely. That is, this is definitely one of my favorite talking points. This has just happened in the last few days. Over the last few years, Google has been trying really hard with its new feature sets in order to try to become a leader in a data and analytics space. And this year, finally, it has been recognized as a leader in the Gartner Magic Quadrant in the data and analytics space for cloud providers. So that's a huge step. Google is really, really excited about it because they have, fin- they have been trying for the last three years and there were a lot of, there was a lot of push on the Google side in order to get there. And now it has been recognized as such. And it is not very surprising because of the way in which they have organized themselves in the way in which they have aligned themselves a little bit more closer to the enterprise requirements rather than what what tools and technologies were the Google way. Mm -hmm. So now they have been more open to understanding an enterprise needs, which is not necessarily the Googly needs. And at the same time, that alignment has made it, in my opinion, make that journey from a challenger, from a visionary into the leader quadrant. And uh, there are a number of different players in the leader quadrant that is going to be very interesting to see how it pans out in 2019 because of what we are seeing in the market in terms of a few other players who also were not in the in the magic quadrant in the leaders, but they are also there now this year. So that is going to make the market a little bit more consolidated in terms of who the big players are in terms of data and analytics in the cloud. Some of the legacy players, I can see them slipping already. And some of the challengers and visionaries who were there over the last couple of years have be- have moved on to the leader quadrant. It's it's a fascinating report if you have been following data and analytics over the last few years. Yeah. I wonder like with these type of developments, like how the market is moving, like what's going to happen to companies like let's say something like a click or a tableau which are great companies, pretty big, but they're in a niche space of the whole analytics stack, right? So then they they have to like compete with things like 
Google creating their, what's it called, the, the Insight Studio. Studio. Yeah, Data Studio. Microsoft obviously has Power BI. Amazon has, I forget what it's called, but they also have their own thing, right? So will there be eventually a situation where the big cloud providers with the way deep, deeper pockets and, and way better integrations will just eat the pie out of all these other niche players, right? Well, possibly. In my opinion, it is definitely possible. But at the same time, if you look at the at the reports in terms of what Gartner calls the cloud maturity model, the last stage of the maturity model is being a multi-cloud provider. So if you're looking at multi-cloud, each one of these individual services that are being provided by Microsoft or Google or, or AWS, that is Power BI, Data Studio, that doesn't really span across multiple different clouds. If you still want to be agnostic in terms of your reporting capabilities and visualizing capabilities, you definitely need a player there. So there is some opportunity there. Again, there are multiple different areas as well. Like there is Snowflake that I'm seeing in the market getting a lot of attention. There is also Databricks that is getting a lot of attention. In the next episode, we will definitely talk about Kubernetes operate, uh, Spark operator for Kubernetes, which is being just launched on GCP, but we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. That is definitely Google's answer to solving a lot of Databricks problems. So there are a lot of things that are happening in this space in order to try to consolidate. But I definitely think that there is a lot of value in having, um, whether it be an open source or a third party player, in order to be a little bit vendor agnostic as well. At the same time, obviously deep integrations with your own platform makes a lot of sense. So it always depends on what strategy an organization needs to follow if they put all their chips in one particular cloud provider or they want to have a more distributed strategy. And larger enterprises also have a hybrid presence as well. A lot of data resides still all today on-prem. So that's not going away very soon. Right. And last but pretty fun one, forget the Turing test. Let's break out <laughs> some StarCraft. Why don't you explain that, Kartik? Yes, absolutely. This is a fun thing that just happened. Back in the day, a few... Decades ago, we were talking about Deep Blue, how it was beating all the chess grandmasters in chess. And now we have uh, the next uh, modern version of that called DeepMind, which is actually a Google collaboration with actually Google product right now because Google actually bought DeepMind a few years ago. So Deep, how, it, how DeepMind really started was essentially they had an AI gaming solution, which was essentially a AI-based game player. And it started with trying to play a lot of games on the Atari platform, like some of the old back in the day games. And Google was very interested in doing, in, in trying to acquire that and trying to see how they can adopt some of their AI technology within the, within the larger Google ecosystem. Recently, what they did is they actually started working with StarCraft, which is one of the most popular games across the world for one-on-one -on -one players. And there are a lot of really niche players in this market. Very uh, popular for competitive gaming as well. Like very, serious very popular gamers in the RTS space. That's what they play. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so DeepMind has its own player called AlphaStar, which actually utilize deep learning and all the other machine learning technologies in order to beat the top two players in the world in StarCraft. And there is one statement which always cracks me up, but as soon as I read it, it was the technique that they used was known as multi-agent reinforcement learning process. The technique works by learning through collective experience, which always reminds me of the Borg from Star Trek. <laughs> but 
that is actually how they are actually using the AI technology. And they have a lot of cutting edge processes in terms of deep learning and deep neural nets in order to be able to evaluate a multiphasic approach in order to understand a much more complicated game than just what they used to play earlier in terms of the different Atari games like Go and so on. So this is definitely a big showdown in terms of the capabilities that AI can present. And this has a lot of applications in multiple real world scenarios as well. So it goes much more beyond machine learning for gaming, but it also tries starts trying to address multiple different levels of strategy as well. When you have different situations that, that might arise, whether it be in an organization or whether it be in certain use cases that you have in your industry. So it's not there yet. This is, this is how things start. And everybody is very excited about this because nobody really thought that it was possible to beat humans at such a complicated strategy game. But well, it's happened and everybody is talking about it. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun to see that happen. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a ter- simultaneously, at least to me, terrifying because there's a, a number of ways you could weaponize this this level of AI, but it is neat. So those are all the updates we had for the show today. I don't really have a cloud age productivity tip for this show, but I'd love to have more. So please, if you have a cloud age productivity tip, please email it to me at the datascape podcast at gmail.com. If I read your tip, I will send you swag. That's all the time we had for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is helping others to find us. And you can do that by reviewing us on your podcast platform of choice or just telling a friend. Have a great day in the datascape. Navigating the Datascape.